appreciate Bill sharing that information about his singing. Those of us who sat in front of him already knew that. Just teasing. <laughs> we are glad to be here tonight. I hope you are and hope those watching online are glad to be with us at our services here at the Hoover Church of Christ Wednesday night Bible study. As Bill mentioned, tonight's uh, lesson will be a continuation of uh, the afterlife topic that we looked at last week, uh, zeroing in on uh, Egyptian uh, stuff and my trip in 2021. Uh, but tonight, uh, I'm going to kind of uh, springboard off of that and uh, uh, look at uh, not just the Jewish afterlife thought, but also the Christian afterlife thought and what it means for us today as well. Um, the Egyptians were the first ones we said last week that probably uh, put down a belief system in the afterlife. But we're going to look at the belief system that we find in Scripture tonight. I feel confident that uh, the majority of people here tonight, the majority of people who have ever lived or ever will live, at one time will ponder this question, where does my spirit or my soul go after death? Let's look at some scripture to begin with. We'll not spend a lot of time with them. I just want to build kind of a base of, uh, out of the Old Testament and the New Testament, a couple out of the Old Testament. Book of Psalms, chapter 49, verses 14 and 15. Like sheep, they are laid in the grave. That word is sheol. We'll talk about it a little bit more. Often translated grave. Death shall feed on them, and their beauty shall be consumed in the grave. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Definitely afterlife thought there. And then, of course, David, over in uh, the book of 2 Samuel 12, 23, responding uh, after the death of uh, his son, uh, he says this, But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Definitely David had some concept of an afterlife. Although Jewish scripture gives very little information about afterlife, uh, Jews in general uh, believe that uh, human beings had a soul and it would continue on into some kind of afterlife, again, though it was not very well defined in Judaism. Most Jews believe that when you die, the soul and the body will separate and join again somewhere in the afterlife and there'll be some kind of judgment those who lived good lives would uh, be gathered into heaven, and those who committed sins would be placed in a punishment place called hell. Jews have lived a sinless life. Uh, I don't know what they meant by sinless life. Would go straight to Gan Eden, Eden. However, it's possible that souls could be sent to Sheol, and there, or to Gehenna. Uh, Sheol being the underworld, Gehenna being the hell. Sheol, then, is the place of waiting where souls are cleansed and purified, uh, that type of thing in the Jewish mindset. Gehenna is a place of torment or punishment. Reformed Judaism, and I, I'm not up on my Judaism. I don't know exactly when Reformed Judaism came along, but Reformed Judaism uh, believes in an afterlife. They believe in this place called Sheol. Talk about it more in a minute. Their idea of heaven, though, is uh, not a gated community, but an open door. It's open to anyone, uh, whatever your belief might be. Uh, it's not determined on specific beliefs or actions. They have no concept of hell, Reformed Judaism. Uh, the closest one gets to uh, some idea of hell or punishment in Reformed Judaism is the idea it's said he is cut off from his kin 
if he denies God, lives immoral, that type of thing. Here's a statement you need to hang on to. Jewish beliefs in the afterlife are as diverse as Judaism. <laughs> you can find all kinds of beliefs in Judaism and Reformed Judaism in terms of the afterlife. You might find a few different ones in Christianity as well. Now look at the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8. Yes, we are of good courage, Paul said, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Apostle Paul writes that it's far more significant to be with the Lord in soul and spirit, awaiting the resurrection, than to not be with him at all. Revelation 2.11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The second death, of course, in Revelation refers to punishment, to hell, your soul cut off from God. Hebrews 9, 27, very familiar passage to all of us, 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So we find that human destiny is we're all going to die. It's coming unless the Lord comes first. Now talking about this second coming of Jesus, referred to in the Greek as parousia, familiar words, some of you. Uh, Paul describes that parousia, that second coming of, of uh, Jesus, and he says like this, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. King James said he wouldn't have you ignorant brethren, so it depends on where you put the, you know, the old joke. But he says, I wouldn't want you to be ignorant about those who are asleep. A euphemism for those who've died. Young church at Thessalonica, Paul's been gone maybe three or four months. Uh, Paul has a very, very keen uh, belief that the Lord's coming in his lifetime. Just read his writings. He, he's coming in, in Paul's lifetime. Paul believes that. He's taught that. And so the church writes him a letter and says, hey, we got people dying and the Lord hadn't come yet. So he says, I don't want you to be uninformed about that. Uh, that you may not grieve like others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, dead. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not proceed, will not go before those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, Paul thinks it's happened in his lifetime, we who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we'll always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Wonderful passage, by the way, to talk to your friends if you're studying with someone who believes that Jesus is coming back to Jerusalem and set up a thousand-year reign. In the, in the air, guys. Going to bring them up in the air and go to heaven, okay? No thousand-year reign. First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And then in John 14, very familiar passage, verse 2. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Jesus has gone ahead, and he is preparing a mansion, if you prefer, a room. I'll take a room. How about you? Then John 11, verse 25 and 26, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. No second death here. You live even though you die. 
All right, so there's some scripture that we can conclude, I think, the following, even though there is no well-developed uh, afterlife in Judaism, read the Old Testament, there's just no well-developed thought in Judaism about afterlife and heaven and all that good stuff. But the Jews in general did believe in an afterlife. In the New Testament, clearly, the destiny of all humanity is at some point we're going to die and there'll be a judgment. In this afterlife, Jesus has gone ahead to prepare a place for us. And there will be a second coming at which time Jesus will call forth the dead in Christ from their graves. And those faithful disciples who are still living at his return, which could be at any moment, they'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 50 and following and all through there. Changed into spiritual beings and will uh, ascend with Jesus in the clouds and be with him forever. Jesus is the resurrection and life and there will be no second death for faithful disciples of Jesus. All right, another thing we like to do from time to time, Chuck is a, a good guy at this and I've always done this in my preaching, it's very important, uh, do word studies. And so we're gonna look at some words tonight that have a lot to do with afterlife. We're gonna look at uh, uh, Sheol, uh, Hades, paradise, body, spirit, and soul. Well, let me stop there and see if anybody have any questions. I just <clears throat> get to rolling along. I'm prepared to go if you don't ask any, but you have any right now, I'd be glad to entertain them, kind of a setup for what we're doing. Anybody? Okay. All right, Sheo. As already mentioned, Sheo is the Old Testament Hebrew word that translates the abode of the dead. Old Testament writers envisioned the dead would be goaded in this place called Sheol. It's found in the Bible 65 times. Translated pit three times. 31 times is translated as grave and 31 times is translated as hell. To the Hebrew mind, it was simply the state or the abode of the dead. It's where you went after you died. You departed this world, you went to Sheol. Sheol was pictured as a place beneath the earth. And so when it talks about Sheol, it talks about going down to Sheol. Genesis chapter 37, 42, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 31, lots of places if you just Google uh, Sheol. Uh, whenever heaven is mentioned, by the way, you're always going up to heaven, <clears throat> just like Jerusalem. You're always going up to Jerusalem. I don't care what direction you come. It's 3,000 feet above sea level. You go up to Jerusalem. The King James Version has caused a lot of confusion. The translators who did that uh, did not have the best manuscripts available to them. They made some really bad choices. And one of the confusions here is to the English reader, they've translated Sheol as grave in 31 places and translated as hell in 31 other places. Well, Sheol is clearly not the same <clears throat> as grave. Gibar in the Hebrew is not Sheol, it's grave. Genesis 23 verse four. <clears throat> Even though Jacob believed that Joseph had been devoured by the beast, that's what the boys told him, he still expected to go see him in Sheol, Genesis 37, 35. Moses was going to be with his people in Sheol, although he died on a mountain in Jordan. His brother died at Mount Sinai, somewhere near there, and his, his mother died in captivity, and his sister, uh, died, or Aaron, died on Mount Hor, that type of thing. You'll often maybe find, not very often, but the word netherworld uh, for Sheol, and that's in uh, Ezekiel 26, 20. 
<clears throat> and also pit sometimes uh, in some passages is used for shield. Uh, most scholars believe the word derived from hollow, and therefore you get the idea of something below hollow, below ground, that type of thing. In Psalm 88, 6, Job chapter 10, Sheol is a dark, deep region and gloom with no light and chaos. In most instances, when you have someone talking about the experience of going to Sheol, it's not really a very good one. They dread it, Psalm 88, verse 4. This is in stark contrast then to where we are going in Revelation chapter 14, 13. Blessed are those that, that die in the Lord. Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord. So Sheol is represented as a great underground mausoleum uh, or a mighty pit with graves all around it. Uh, look at Ezekiel 32, 21 through 23. You've got nations that are named. They're in the mausoleum. You've got pits all around the, uh, uh, it's a big old hole. You've got pits and graves all around the side of it. Uh, quite a description there in Ezekiel. <clears throat> so Sheol was regarded as the appointed place for all persons, great persons, kings, anybody else, the poverty, that's where they were going to go after they died. This was a gathering place of the tribes and of their families. You have something, <clears throat> Chuck and I both teach a class called Biblical Worldview One, Biblical Worldview Two. He usually has one, I usually have two. This time I have one, I don't know why, but I do. Basically an, an overview of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And, and uh, we use the same book, first nine chapters is Old Testament, Chapter 10 is the intertestamental period. You may have heard of that. It's a term that simply means from about uh, 444 B.C., Malachi, the last writing prophet, uh, God doesn't communicate with his people. There's not a word. And therefore, from that period of time, 444 B.C., down to the coming of John the Baptist, you have everybody trying to communicate and act like they're from God, so you have all this apocryphal writing, if you will. And so the intertestamental period doesn't help us at all either. That's my point. There's nothing in there about afterlife. No one really develops any kind of idea of what it's going to be like during the intertestamental period. <clears throat> so <clears throat> that brings us to the word studies. Let's turn our attention now from uh, Sheol uh, to the word Hades. <clears throat> you may be aware that the... Uh, Hebrew Old Testament was uh, translated into Greek somewhere around 200 B.C., some say 100 B.C., translated uh, uh, by, they say, 70 people. I don't know if that's true or not. But therefore, it, it has the name, the Septuagint version. The Hebrew Bible translated into Greek, Septuagint. Easy way to write it is LXX, 70. <laughs> so instead of saying that big old word, just say LXX. And uh, when they were looking for an equivalent word uh, in the Greek to translate uh, shio, and by the way, when you're doing translation from languages to languages, sometimes there's not a word in that one language that really fits what this one meant in that language. And so you've got to kind of improvise, if you will, get the best you can. And that's what they do here with uh, the word um, Hades. So uh, Hades comes from the Greek Aden, uh, which means to see, but it became known as the unseen realm. It's used 59 times for Sheol in the LXX or Septuagint version. In the New Testament, uh, thought Hades was thought to be where a man and the man made up of the body and the soul and the spirit went. Uh, look at 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. 
1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. All three are there, body, soul, and spirit. The body, of course, returns to the ground, dust of the earth. Uh, the spirit and the soul will depart the body, and that becomes death, and it will go to an afterlife. Term Hades, Latin infernus, occurs 10 times in the New Testament with the instances dispersed over only four books out of the 27 books of the New Testament. Only four books contain the word uh, Hades. Hades is never, I repeat, Hades is never used to designate a place of final punishment, okay? It's not a place where the wicked are judged, Hades, okay? The term place used in the New Testament as the final place of punishment for the wicked is the term Gehenna. Latin Gehenna, it's used 12 times. Gehenna uh, came from the uh, burning pit outside of Jerusalem. Uh, you walk through the valley of death, Gehenna, and that's where they threw the dead bodies, they threw the garbage, it burned day and night, day and night. Beauty of that today is uh, my wife and I have taken a lovely walk through the valley of death. You can have a lovely picnic. The kids are playing soccer. It's a beautiful, beautiful place now. You can walk through it. And uh, the first time I walked through it with Dr. Jack Lewis, he said, you've been walking through the valley of death. So okay. <laughs> it's pretty nice to me. We had the Lord's Supper, I think, in the valley of death one time. So anyway, King James translators again. I'm not totally against the King James. You can go to heaven using the King James. But why take a chance? No, just teasing. Uh, King James translators unfortunately obliterate what the English reader would see as the uniform consistency, a uniform distinction. They use hell for the rendering of both terms, Gehenna and Hades. Often they'll translate Hades as hell. That is totally, totally wrong. Hades serves in the New Testament, as Sheol did in the Old Testament, as an interim purpose. It is the place that receives the dead. Luke chapter 16, and we'll dwell, dwell with that a little bit more in a minute. Hades will at some point, though, yield up the dead at the resurrection. Revelation 20 and verse 13. The second coming of Jesus, the resurrection of the dead, constitutes the end of Hades. For the last enemy will be destroyed, death, 1 Corinthians 15. Death has more, no more sting, 1 Corinthians 15, 55. There will be no more need for death or Hades. Hades may also be used metaphorically, as in Hades conceived of a prison with gates. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. This may surprise you, may, maybe it won't surprise you. But uh, the gates of Hades, not hell, the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. It's not hell there, Matthew 16, 18. It's the gates of Hades. We have a nice parallel uh, in the Old Testament since Hades is translated as Sheo in the New Testament, uh, Greek, then uh, Sheo in the Old Testament, there's a nice parallel uh, in, uh, about gates of Sheo in Job 17, 16, 38, 17, Isaiah 38:10. So again, you see the parallel there. You have uh, shall not, uh, the gates of Hades will not uh, get the church, that type of thing. And the Old Testament, Sheol also has these gates. In New Testament, Hades is the state in which all the dead exist. A descent into Hades may simply refer to someone dying. They've gone to Hades. It is a place where it is disembodied uh, uh, spirits. There's no body, there's spirits. 
In this sense, then, even Jesus is said to have gone to Hades. We'll deal with that a lot more in just a moment. How are we doing on time here? Oh, we got time if we're good. Let's look at uh, body, soul, and spirit for a moment. The first thing to note is that the Bible does not neatly define these terms for us. Therefore, we must ask the question. I think we can all determine the body's a lot different from a spirit or a soul. But is there a difference between uh, the, uh, the spirit and the soul? That's the question, I guess. Uh, there are three views. One is called a, trich uh, a trichotomy, which is three, basically. This states that man is made up of the three parts that we mentioned in 1 Thessalonians a moment ago, uh, the body, the soul, and the spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5. Clearly, one person, three components from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and of the spirit and of the joints and marrow. That's the body, clearly. Body, soul, and spirit. The word of God will penetrate and cut them all. Second is dichotomy. That is, uh, people who uh, view it as uh, just two parts, the body and the spirit, no soul. They view the soul and the spirit as basically the same thing, being referred to as the same thing. Um, then the third one is monism, which uh, nobody really believes that. You'll not see it in any kind of religious. That uh, They say that man is made up only of a body. You don't find any religious writing about that. That's in secular the world. We're just a body, no spirit, that type of thing. Body. The body is what you see in the mirror every day. It's the outermost part of man, and it reacts to the world with five senses. We smell, we taste, we touch, and all that good stuff. But it is not meant to last. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. Pointed unto man wants to die, so the body is going to die. The soul is that part of the man, the common man, the force of life. Uh, I've often heard it referred to as the uh, animation of life uh, and uh, uh, animals have souls. They have animate life. They, they have feeling, they have taste, they have sexual desire, just like we do. That's a soul in that sense. Um, I'm not sure you could convince me my, my black Labrador doesn't have a spirit, though. I think he's going to heaven with me. I hope he is. Anyway. Uh, anyway, uh, spirit differs from soul in one sense, I think, that the spirit is always pointed towards God. Even those folks who are living terrible, terrible lives, they, they know there's something out there. They're looking for it some way. They're not going to find it in all the physical things. The force of life, the soul, the, the desires, the feelings, the emotions, uh, the money, the sex, the drugs, that's not going to find God. The spirit will. I think that's a difference that I would make between the spirit and the soul. The spirit can often be self-centered. Uh, or the soul can often be self-centered, I should say. The joy and peace and comfort of God's presence can only be experienced through our spirit. I did a little reading today and came across a lady who wrote a very fine article, and she talked about her understanding of the uh, uh, body, uh, soul, and spirit like this. Uh, when she cracks an egg, the shell is the physical body that gives us the five senses. The yolk is the mind, thoughts, and emotions, and the thin membrane that encompasses the yolk is our spirit, where our character, our personality, uh, gives us the ability to commune with God. Now, the spirit and soul are intertwined, just as Hebrews 4.12 suggests. While everyone's soul is active until you die, 
Not everyone's spirit is engaged. Sin entered the world through Adam and is still a cause for our spirits to not be in tune with God today. It's through our spirits that we're able to make spiritual discernment. Romans chapter 8 verse 4 talks about, or 6, excuse me, that's right. Romans 8 verse 4, we are to live according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. And I love this one, Romans 8, 16. I used to have this at the top of my bulletin I printed years ago. And that is that uh, God's spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Conclusion. Not for the class, but conclusion. Having noted the difference between soul and spirit, the Bible does at times use them interchangeably, though. Although I still think there is some difference there of such. Now, let's look at Luke chapter 16. If you have your Bibles or your phones, whatever, turn over to Luke chapter 16, verse 19 and following. And I want to spend the remainder of our time this evening looking at a parable uh, which uses the Hadean world uh, to make a very important point. While we are doing so, uh, let me remind you a couple things about a parable. A parable is a short story that teaches a moral or a spiritual lesson. It comes from two Greek words, parabole, uh, to lay alongside. So you take a short story and you lay it alongside what you want to teach and that becomes your parable. It's not, uh, it's not like a fable or uh, what's the other one I'm thinking about? Anyway, doesn't have animals and trees, that type of thing has real people and real stories. Although it was uh, a name given by Greek uh, uh, orators to illustrate some form of a brief fictional narrative. Now, I don't want to say to you tonight that some of the parables were fictional, but I think a parable can be a story that really is not totally true. And I think we're gonna see in Luke 16, there are parts of that parable that just can't be true. It literally just can't be. We'll talk about that in a moment. Luke 16 is a parable that is designed to warn against the selfish life and is not primarily designed to inform us about the state of the dead. However, what it does, it presupposes there is a distinct place or a condition, abode, that the righteous and the wicked dead are in. The rich man knows where he is. He knows where Lazarus is. He knows that he yet has brothers back on earth and he's concerned about them. The implication is that there is an immediate entrance into a new conscious state. One depicted as conscious waiting place of the rest and the other a conscious waiting place for those who are in torment. Judgment, though, has not taken place in this story, folks. This is not a story about heaven. It's not a story about hell. I've heard some preachers preach sermons on heaven and hell out of Luke chapter 16. Well, it's kind of hard to do since neither word appears in the passage. So if you're going to preach heaven and hell out of Luke 16, then God bless you. Uh, you're, you're way out of line here. There is no word hell and no word heaven in Luke 16, 19 and following, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Both Lazarus and the rich man die, and then in 1623, we find them both in the Hadean world, separated by a wide, uncrossable chasm. There's no way in the world this can be a picture of heaven and hell. Hell is gonna be thrown into a dark pit. God's gonna cover it over. There'll be no light. You'll never see God again. You won't see anybody again. That's what hell is, total absence of God. 
Heaven is total in the presence of God. So this parable cannot be a depiction of heaven and hell, and they're not even mentioned in there, by the way. And he's, uh, he looks up, though, in this parable, this story that Jesus is telling. He's telling a story for a reason. It doesn't have to be a true story in every sense of the word to make the point, and that's what he's doing. And uh, he, the old guy looks up and he sees Abraham uh, far uh, and, and Lazarus at the rest of Abraham's bosom. Well, if you look at Jewish history, Abraham's bosom was always depicted as, you know, a place where God was. That's the whole point. Uh, Abraham's bosom is not synonymous for paradise, though. However, one would have to be in paradise if you're going to see Abraham's bosom. Now, for a moment, let's think about Jesus. Jesus was a man, was he not? Fully man. Fully God. Don't understand that? That's what Paul says, Colossians 2, 9, I think it is. The uh, fullness of deity dwelt in him somaticos. That's bodily. He's fully man, he's fully God. Don't understand. Everything that happens to man happened to Jesus. Tempted in every way like we are. He died just like we died. And so therefore, he went to uh, Hades. Look at Acts chapter 2, 26 and 27, and verse 31. Quotes from Psalm 1610, that at the death of Jesus, uh, he went to Hades, not to hell. Jesus has never been to hell. He will never go to hell. Not been there. And if you go over to First Peter, that's a whole other class. You know, Jesus went and spoke to them in hell. He did not. Uh, this is a, uh, we don't have time to do that. Anyway, look at Acts 2, 26 and 27. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. That is Hades, not hell. Hadas. Or let your Holy One see corruption. Then look at verse 31, Acts 2. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So at the death of Jesus, he went, as all men did and do, to the Hadean world, the unseen world, the, the Greek equivalent to the Shios, where all the dead go. We go to Hades. Note Luke 23, 43. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So Jesus is going to the Hadean world, and now when he talks to the thief on the cross, he puts another wrinkle in it. In this Hadean world, there is a place called paradise. Paradise. It's a word of Persian origin, means an enclosed park. It's often used in the Septuagint version to talk about the Garden of Eden. Nehemiah 2.8 talks about it. Song of Solomon talks about it. Paradise. Paradise is used three times in the New Testament. Paul uses it to describe the third heaven. I was caught up in the third heaven. I was in paradise, 2 Corinthians 12.3. It's also used in Revelation 2.7 for the location of the tree of life available to those who overcome. And it's used in Luke 23.43 for the thief on the cross. This day you will be with me in paradise. Now the important question to ask is, as it relates to the state of the dead, whether or not paradise and the Lord's promise to the thief is the same one that Paul used in 2 Corinthians 12, 37 about the third heaven. Well, paradise is not heaven, folks. If you want paradise in Luke 23, 43 to be an alternative for heaven, then you've got to deal with Acts chapter two because Acts chapter two, Peter quotes from Psalms and he says he went to Hades, not to heaven. 
And also, uh, you might note that uh, he's going to say uh, to, the, to the lady in John chapter 20, I think it is, uh, don't touch me, I hadn't been to the Father yet. It's in the Hadean world. He hadn't been to heaven yet. So, it seems more plausible to me that to deduce from the chain of events that paradise, in Jesus' statement, was a part of the Hadean world, paradise, not heaven. And so it appears to me from Scripture that we can now connect the parable of Jesus in Luke 16 with Abraham and Lazarus. We're in Hades paradise, the same place where Jesus went according to Acts 2. And further, there's also another part of that state of the dead that we don't know much about. It's simply referred to as torment and fire. It's not even given a name. But you got the good guy, Lazarus, over here in Abraham's bosom. And you got this other guy in torment. And he's looking up and seeing Lazarus in Abraham's bosom, which is impossible. It can't be heaven. That couldn't happen. It's a story. And the whole point is, fella, your brothers have the law and Moses. You can't go back and help them. If they don't pay attention to that, they'll be right here with you. Same thing we got today. We got the New Testament. You don't pay attention to that, you'll end up in torment rather than in uh, the good place. All right. So the Hadean world is not hell, nor did God allow his son to remain in the Hadean world, the world of the dead. Further, we can confirm that paradise was not heaven, but Hadean world. Jesus said, John 20, 17, don't touch me, that type of thing. Now, one last thing or two, and we'll quit. There are those who take the position, and I used to preach this all the time, that the righteous, when they die, they go straight to be with God in heaven, in the arms of Jesus. Makes a good sermon. It's very comforting. I just don't think it's true. If that's the case, then what do you do with Hades? If that's the case, what do you do with judgment? If that's the case, what do you do with a the body? They don't have a spiritual body yet. If that's the case, what do you do with 1 Thessalonians 4.13? Jesus is coming. They're going to come out of the graves and meet him in the air. If that's the case, where are the dead rising from, if not the grave? The Hadean world, paradise. The account of Jesus' own death experience as given in Acts seems to reject the notion that the thief went directly to heaven. Jesus was taken out of paradise. He didn't see corruption. The thief is still there, folks. He did see corruption. He's waiting for the day of judgment. According to the parable in Luke 16, in the Hadean world, there's a consciousness and there's waiting. Again, I believe it's a story, and as a story, I'm willing to think that it's a story that's really not any consciousness. Folks, I'd be happy to be asleep in Jesus. That's what the Bible says. What's time going to mean to me? If I'm dead, I'm a spirit and sleep in Jesus. Time means nothing. I'm not sure there's consciousness in this Hadean world. I think the story was told to have consciousness so the point could be made. Your brothers have the law of Moses. You can't go help them. Conclusion. Scripture shows clearly the dead, the righteous wicked, go to the Hadean world, not straight to heaven. That's my opinion. If you want them to go straight to heaven, I'll not argue with you. But you can argue with Scripture as far as I'm concerned. But I wouldn't be mad at you at all. Further, the Hadean world, from whatever you take away from that parable, has two separate places. The wicked have to go someplace different than the righteous. I think you'd agree with that. And the Hadean world, the shield of the Old Testament, is where one waits for the second coming of Jesus in paradise. Jesus died and went to Hades and took the thief with him. 
God did not abandon Jesus, took him out, raised him. The thief is still waiting for the resurrection. To try and compose a picture of heaven and hell from a parable in Luke 16 is ludicrous, especially when the two words don't even exist in that parable. Luke 16 is a story, and parables are not to be pressed to find meaning in everything you read in a parable. Death and Hades will give up their dead for judgment when Jesus comes, and then they'll both be destroyed. And we will receive rewards and punishments from God. Thank you very much. Time has run over a little bit. You may not want to ask any questions. You can ask some if you'd like, or you can see me after class. Again, I don't have all the answers, but I think I've had a lot of scripture here that will cause you to think a little bit about the afterlife. Thank you very much.